have I got a story for you. Jessica Scarane is running for the United States Senate to represent Delawareans. She served on the boards of nonprofits, hiked the Grand Canyon, waited tables, been without health care, and, if elected, would be the first female senator to represent Delaware. But first, another first, I guess, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. Yes, AndrePsyche.com is the, say it with me, cute, quaint, corner store boutique with all sorts of neat and original merch you had no idea existed because AndrePsyche.com has been hidden and tucked away in the northwest part of the internet. Let me give you a little preview of the plethora of potential purchases available to peruse. We are talking about literature, clothing, paintings, prints, accessories, music, poetry, or best of all, and if you're really trying to wow someone, get them, have, the, have made a completely 100% created from scratch custom gift. How? Because Andre Psyche is after all a freelance creator extraordinaire. So go to AndrePsyche.com and see what speaks to you because each and every item has a story behind it. Nothing is made. Everything is created on AndrePsyche.com. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You Pod. Do me a favor. If you wouldn't mind, just need a couple clicks out of you. Can you please subscribe to the Getting to Know You Pod on Spotify, Apple, or whatever application you are currently listening on? And while you're at it, could you rate and review the podcast, especially if you are listening through Apple? Also, if you haven't already, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All you have to do is search us up. It is getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod. It would really be helpful in our quest for sponsors and advertisers, and you would be supporting a local Delaware podcast. And finally, speaking of those sponsors and advertisers, if you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, please consider partnering with us. We get to know people from all around the world, and this podcast is downloaded in over 25 different countries and the majority of the United States. So if, again, you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your products, or should it be products, more clicks on your whatever, all you have to do is message us through any of our social media platforms. Our advertising rates are extremely reasonable, and we would love to partner with you. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. my cup of tea. On today's show, we are getting to know Jess. And Jess Scarane, and I really hope I said that right, is running for one <laughs> of Delaware's two Senate seats. And if elected, fun fact, I did not know this, would be the first woman to represent Delaware in that role. Jess, thanks so much for coming on and letting everybody get to know you. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And you did say my last name correctly, which 
honestly is surprising. It doesn't happen all the time. Well, we're extremely thorough here. And 10 minutes before <laughs> you came on, I was checking your Twitter, which has a pinned video where you introduce yourself. And I just, <laughs> I, I had to listen to it four times. I made a phonetic note, I like SCA, and then I put a slash through it so that I would hit the hard A with the rain. I was super nervous nice. about that. No, you um, nailed it. Great job. Thank you. <laughs> it's the little things that you got to take pride in. Um, that's something that I was amazed at. There's never been a female senator from Delaware, huh? Yeah, not one. I mean, we only right now have our first female congresswoman and who also is our first black representative. Wow. So for as democratic and you know progressive as our state is, we haven't really had representation that matches the, the, the people in our state. That's so, what, do you have a theory as to why? Uh, I think that there's been a lot, I mean, it's a little bit of what we're running into even when we're campaigning. Like we're one of the first times that senators have really seen primary elections. And I think there's been a pretty well-established approach to finding candidates in our state and not having people kind of step up and run on their own people who look more like the working people of our state. Right. And I think that's changing though, particularly with the start of 2018 and definitely this cycle with the amount of candidates we are seeing who just chose to run for themselves. You know, it wasn't yeah. that someone from the existing power structures recruited them. They just saw much like I did a world that, they're not happy with and that they recognize they can use the power of elected office to change it. And, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And we're going to see much more representative representation for that reason going forward. Yeah. And the social media, and I know social media is not new till 2018, but <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's been a wave that I've been, it's been super interesting to see because in a little bit of prep, speaking with um, people running for office, I've you know you Wikipedia people. So Wikipediaing some of these um, the incumbents, I'm amazed at like, dude, that's like all you've done, man. Like you you right. got into a local office early and you somehow hit the pipeline and you just like paid your dues and it was step after step after step. And it's like, how can you represent a reg like a, a working person if I don't know if you've ever actually been a working person. I know, I know government's right. working, but you haven't been like a public working per or, or a private working person. Yeah. And it's super interesting. Yeah. I, I, I didn't realize that. And I think what happens there is that we end up having a lot of people who just go through the same machine, right? And yeah. they see lower government as stepping stones to higher government, which I think is completely inaccurate. And if you're going to question, you know, if people have questioned me, like, why are you running for Senate? Why don't you get some experience lower in the government? Yeah, but like a city council I don't or something. Think, <laughs> right. But the thing is, city council, school board, state house, these are not stepping stones to higher government positions. These are incredibly important, powerful positions that we should be filling with people who want to use the power of that seat to make change. I don't want someone on my school board, if I'm a parent, who sees that as a, a way to mm, sit there for four years, maybe yeah, right. then run for state rep. Because what I want on my school board are people who care deeply about what you can do to affect the education of kids in our state with that position. Stakeholders. And I think people, sh yeah. And people should be running for the positions that 
give them the power to make the change they want to see. And for me, it was focusing on these very large structural problems in our society that can really only be dealt with from the federal level. And we shouldn't be, we don't want to keep pushing people through the exact same steps to get to these seats because we will get the exact same results. And I think that is what's driving this new generation and class of candidates is you're not going to tell me where to start. You're not going to tell me (laughs) what change I can and cannot make. You're not going to tell me that we can't have the things that we know we need. And I think it's coming from a real place of particularly people, you know, around my age, I'm a 35 years old. We've lived through, you know, three recessions that I can remember, um, two endless wars, massive extreme weather events that are destroy people's lives and livelihoods, which all of these things are continuing and ongoing. And we look at the people that we have in positions of power and we see that they aren't even really talking about the core issues that people face. We're talking about these like incremental tweaks around the edges. And that's the kind of stuff that actually causes people to become really disillusioned and causes people to say there's no good choices, there's no good candidates, there's no good options. So we are looking at a class of candidates now that are saying we have to actually use the power of these positions to materially improve the conditions of people's lives. And that is what is going to make our society better and our state better and our country better. And that's what people are looking for. That's what gets them actually excited. Someone who understands the problem that they face in their daily lives. You know, I've been in the position of having to work multiple jobs to pay my rent. I've been in the position of making minimum wage and not being able to get by or having a job where the schedule is done only a week in advance. So you can never really plan anything ahead and taking time off means that you're going to get booted from the schedule the next week and not make any money. And I'm really lucky to have a job that compensates me well now and I can feel comfortable with, but I know from being a worker and being in positions of, of abuse by management and, and the people in power those things can go away at any moment. So we really have to be focused on how do we actually improve from a societal standpoint and from a social program standpoint, the foundation that people have in their lives in our country. Yeah, that's that was something. So I grew up um, waiting tables near the beach area in Rehoboth. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm Done a teacher, right? And so now I'm a teacher. And one of the most amazing things, and I don't know if I would get fired for this because I think it's been like 12 years, but I was like, I could take a day off and I still get paid like I showed up. It was so foreign (laughs) to me because as as like a waiter and a bartender, man, you call out, like you maybe have some sick hours that get you $2 an hour, but you're, you have to work to get money. You you don't have all these extra benefits. And then like, Lord help you if you need some dental work as a restaurant worker, you know, or if you don't have any benefits and And I've worked those jobs with no healthcare, no benefits. Like, and it's so easy to not understand what that like feels like and the limits it puts on you as a person Mm -hmm. with choice in society. Like it's very debilitating. Um, if you've always had benefits and if you've always had that security. Right. And we have to talk about how keeping people who are working in, in many cases, multiple jobs in that state of instability and in that state of just constant stress about what might happen today, tomorrow, next week, years from now, because that has health effects on people. It affects people's relationships. It affects people's mental health. Like, 
there's a broader ripple effect. Yeah, diets. I mean, and even yes. like, and even just the physical strain if you're working. I, I know working in restaurants, mm-hmm. you tweak your back, you tweak your wrist. It's so easy. Oh, and God, you can't yeah. take a couple days off, you know, because mm-hmm. again, like you've almost said, like, it's like, wow, you're kind of unreliable. All right, man, we'll just put you on day shift, give you three days a week and um, basically gradually make you either want to quit or exactly. we'll just unschedule you because that's what we can do. Exactly. And Right. And it creates this structure, this, this kind of competition among workers as well, where rather than having solidarity with each other, you become sort of in competition with one another. Because if I start getting punished for needing to take a day off, those are shifts and hours that are now available for you to take. And it creates this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of people not standing with each other and instead constantly being in kind of competition with each other. And trying to take advantage of the moments where someone else slips up rather than saying, how can we help this person out? And so healthcare wise, that's something as I've gotten older. So I'm, I turned 39 this summer. So we're pretty similar age demographics, mm-hmm. right? Probably seems pretty similar upbringing. Um, I don't get how insurance, and I understand the research and development that a lot of like pharmaceutical companies get or have to do and how products don't always make it to market and they, those are all losses and whatnot. But just basic health insurance for care, I don't get how that's so expensive. And I honestly don't get why it can't be universal. I've spoken to Canadians and that's something like (laughs) they're like, dude, I'm not moving to America and losing my health insurance. Speaking to 25-year-old Canadians who are trying to like start their own jobs and be entrepreneurs, it's like I I have health insurance. I'm taking care of it. It's so secure. I'm able to take risks. And it seems like that's almost a way to limit people from taking risks in yes. America. That's almost how like yes. where I'm standing now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it completely keeps people beholden to needing to have a job and a job that is given to them by, you know, some boss rather than being able to set out on their own, rather than being able to just create art if that's what they want to do. Right. You know, like yeah, we have people, we've lost so much of that because people need to struggle to survive rather than us saying we can take care of the basic needs of every single person in this country. And you say, you know, I don't know why it has to be like this. It certainly doesn't, right? You're using the model of people in Canada. There's a model to follow there. We are the only country that doesn't do this. So it's, it's ridiculous and it's nonsensical to tell the American people that it's not possible. And what the reason that we have heard that it is not possible over and over from the people in power is because of the influence of the industry in their donations and their lobbying to those people who hold the positions of power. Man. And, and and that's why we won't see change, but it's absolutely possible. We know that a universal healthcare system would save us almost half a billion dollars, or excuse me, half a trillion dollars every year. It would save almost 70,000 lives every year. And what we need instead is to continue the fight on the ground to continue building political mandate and political will. It's there. I mean, 88% of Democrats and something like 60% of just Americans support a universal healthcare system. What we need now are people who are actually going to represent the views of the American people in elected office. Yeah. So two, two things again, Wikipedia and I, um, I, I don't, <laughs> you can drop names. I don't want to drop names because I just don't know if that's fair to you on your podcast. But um, the person who is also, I guess now you have to face in the primary, according to Wikipedia, $7 million of fundraising 
for Delaware? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Who who are you hanging out with to earn seven million dollars? Why do you need seven million dollars to get elected? And all you got was basically, I think, at most a quarter million votes. Like, right. what? It, I, yeah. And I can't if do that. I mean, in the primary, enough. it's far less. Yeah. And it all is coming. It's influence, right? right? It's it, it's predominantly corporate money, corporate PAC money, and it's those corporations giving money in an attempt to influence what happens once that person is reelected. And it really harms our ability to create change in our country. I mean, that is campaign finance reform and, and just moving toward publicly funded elections will, would be a dramatic change in our country because what that means is everyone's working from the same amount of money to get elected. And you actually have to run on a campaign that speaks to what people want and you aren't, you don't have to be independently wealthy to run, you For know, sure. you're, or with those you're making the point of my, my, my opponent, you know, the first time he ran, he donated $250,000 to himself. Well, <laughs> th- he's, he comes from the wealthiest family in our state. You know, he's an wow. heir to the Gore-Tex company. Oh, wow. So that is not... <laughs> what most people can do. And it creates a, a unfair playing field from the very beginning. Well, and then, and on then top once of you're it, in there and you're expecting that corporate money, it keeps you there, right? Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to get to because speaking to people who are not incumbents, I cannot imagine, hey, I'm going to hold my job so I can still pay my bills. Hey, I'm going to travel the state. Hey, I'm going to take mm-hmm. time to come on podcasts to try to get yeah. you know, radio, airplane, things like that. And that's part of just scheduling with you. I'm like so appreciative of that hour. Because you have 40 different things going on where if you're the incumbent, it's already such an advantage that like basically your job is to get reelected. That's like, right. that's pretty much your primary focus once you get in office, it seems, is all you care about is the next election. And it, yeah. it just seems so wrong on a, on a, I don't, on a basic like fair, if you're into sports, on a fair level, <laughs> right? right? Like you wouldn't allow Absolutely. one team to take steroids and then play little leaguers. It just wouldn't right. be right. Exactly. Like we're not, it's like playing with a handicap and it's like, you know, but in the wrong, in the wrong way. And it really harms working people and it keeps people from being able to run. And I've heard that I've heard that people working on my opponent's campaign have made comments saying like, oh, well, it's really easy to run if you're going to just tell people what they want to hear insinuating that I'm solely running on policies because it's what people want. And because you just do whatever trending on Twitter, as if I don't have values. You're like, no, this is trending. This is mine. Oh, cool. (laughs) But also think about that for a minute that you're running on things people don't want. You're our representative. So why is it a criticism to say I'm running on the things that people want? That is completely (laughs) bogus. I'm running on things people want because people know the solutions to the problems that they're facing. They don't need other people to come up with solutions for them. If you are living without health insurance, you know that that is a, a untenable situation. And you know that if there was a government program that allowed you to go to whatever doctor you wanted to see for medical, dental, vision, hearing, mental health, yeah, mental substance health. abuse services, all yeah. of these things right now, the ability to pay is a barrier to those things. And that's, that is 
if, if you were experiencing that, you know, the solution. So because I'm running on that solution, does that mean I am like pandering and just telling people what they want to hear? I'm saying you need a representative who's actually going to fight for the things that you yourself have said you want. But to to level that criticism against me, I think is just so indicative of the the values and beliefs of my opponent and and their campaign they don't think they have to represent the will of the people yeah and it's easy it's easy just to say that to someone it's easy to look at you you're a millennial what are you on social media kind of a thing and then it's like mm. oh mm. we're like and i don't I'm, i imagine a lot of them don't actually even do or go through their own social media cuz they don't need to right they're they're already right. there they don't actually have to like take the time to build the personal connections and as far as healthcare, there was something when you were naming stats earlier, and this is something I've always thought about too, with small businesses looking to expand and having to provide benefits if they get to that point to entice mm-hmm. workers. What an extra cost for small businesses who then have to pass that cost on to someone, right? right. Whether it's less salaries, whether it's a higher price product point or price point, point price, price mm-hmm. point for their product. <laughs> I mean, like it, it just seems, and with the infrastructure we have, like all this stuff is built is the fear of universal healthcare that like the government's going to be the doctors and now doctors aren't valued? Like, I, I don't get the, yeah. the fear of well, why people Well, I think some of the it. fear has been propagated by the insurance industry and then parroted by politicians. You know, you hear it's too expensive. We can't afford it. It will bankrupt our country. Again, it saves us money. We're spending more money right now on healthcare and getting worse outcomes than every other country. So there's something that we're doing wrong. Well, you and it's just... not that we are inherently less healthy. So there's that lie that gets told. There's the lie that gets told that people like their private insurance, which again, maybe if you've got a really great plan, but I've got a good plan. And then as soon as I go to use it, it's a headache. Oh, dude, I'm oh, getting I, like, I get bills six months later that I don't understand what they're for. Like no one likes using their insurance unless they somehow have some universal like program that no bills show up or no copays or no premiums. Exactly. But like Lord help you if you need to get reimbursed for something. (laughs) God, yeah. And like figuring out what a line item is. I had a I had something that came from my dentist. I do have dental coverage, but something came and it was a bill and it wasn't an astronomical bill. It was like $50, but I could not figure out why I owed them $50. And it, and people have to make the decision of like, well, do I pay the bill or do I spend the time yeah. calling the doctor, calling the insurance company, going back and forth because Organizing. no one's going to actually give me a straight answer. Yeah. And these are the things that we put up with, with our current system. And it's unnecessary. And it, it adds to the stress in people's lives that can make them unhealthy. So all of these things that you hear, the, the other one is, you know, rationing of care. Oh, there's wait times in in England. There's wait times in Canada. Well, I had a team member who needed to go see a cardiologist, and it took over seven weeks to get that appointment. So, dude, I'm there's I'm, wait times here right now, and that's an issue of lack of doctors yeah. and not investing in the infrastructure, not an issue of the insurance system. No, I do. I I changed um, my plan, so I have the new uh, whatever healthcare provider and. I literally cannot find a primary care physician. Like I've called no. eight offices and they were like, oh, we might be able to get you in by September. I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah. Like just to like be like, hey man, are you healthy and okay? I'm like, I guess yeah. I'll, I guess if I need anything, I'll just keep going to like got a doc and pay my $10 copay <laughs> to meet with someone who I hope is really certified and who definitely right. is not. 
those people are normally not happy to be there. Right. <laughs> and I'm right. like, I'm like, but that's what I'm stuck with. And um, again, dude, I'm a, t- I'm a teacher. Like I'm, I'm middle class. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's where I'm at. I cannot, and I'm like, it just makes no sense. It makes no, no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And, and particularly when we are in the middle of a global pandemic that our government has frankly failed to respond to adequately. And because of that pandemic, millions of people have now lost their jobs. Yeah. So even if you had employer-based coverage, you don't anymore. Yeah. And the solution that has been proposed of, you know, there was a house bill that said, we're going to cover people's COBRA payments which if any listeners don't know, COBRA is basically a way for you to, if you lose your job, to continue your healthcare coverage by paying the full premium. Oh yeah, You know, there's the part of the premium you pay, there's the part of the premium your employer pays. So it's typically very expensive. I've had to do it before and it was over $700 a month. If, but that's still just to hold on to your plan. It doesn't actually give you any healthcare. And that's the issue that is so integral to this is that people are paying thousands and thousands of dollars a year before they ever even get any care. And that's where actual rationing comes in. Our insurance companies actually ration our care right now. It's not going to be a government single payer system that's rationing anything. You can go get the care you need as long as, again, we invest in the doctors and we build up our medical infrastructure. But right now, my insurance company decides, you know, Mm, you haven't met your deductible. So that's going to cost you out of your pocket. And I've got a, whatever it is, $3,000 deductible. So on top of paying thousands of dollars in premiums, we have people paying thousands of dollars in deductibles. So we're paying to be in a program that we then have to continue to pay for service. And it completely cuts out people who even have insurance. They still can't afford the care that they need because of this system. Yeah, man. And the the networks... Figuring out networks and figuring out what doctor or what specialist fits with it and do you qualify and what is the difference in the pay between those and mm-hmm. MRI or a CAT scan, like, well, where does that fall? Well, who does right. who, who makes that decision? Well, will it even be reimbursed because if it's not deemed necessary or something like that? Yeah. And it's right. just it and you just get lost. It's an abyss. And it feels like it should yeah. be simple if we're such a prosperous nation. It really does. Right. And I mean, I know personally, I've just not gotten care I needed because, you know, I had, I tweaked my back and I went and was like, okay, I'm going to go to the doctor, figure this out, try to get physical therapy. Well, the doctor recommended 15 sessions of physical therapy. My insurance company said they'd pay for eight. Ooh. And we'll meet you in the middle. We'll start it, negotiating. Yeah, at eight. Maybe, we'll just, maybe you can work yeah, your way to 12. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think I did fight and maybe got to 11 or 12. Yeah, but again, right. I had to fill out paperwork yeah. and like go through this process. But it's still not resolved right. because I probably needed that full 15, if not more. But once my insurance company stopped paying and I looked at the actual cost it would have been for me yeah. to just get the care I needed, I was like, I can't justify that. So it's still an ongoing issue. So how many of those exist in our country where people actually went to the doctor to try to get it solved, but it didn't get solved. And the insurance company basically said, well, we're not going to continue paying for you to try to figure this out. So we have, we walk around with all of these ailments and illnesses that could absolutely be treated. Yeah, man. And so, and this is something where I guess I would need to get better as an individual because I have not looked into how Canada actually does it. Do you have some like, and not like specific specifics, but some specifics, how, how would it actually work if this bill were passed and it was universal healthcare? 
Like, do the insurance companies just go away? Is the government now paying for the doctor's salaries and building the hospitals? How would it actually, what, yeah. would, it, what would it look like? So what would happen is that, you know, private insurance companies can't offer kind of what's called duplicative coverage. So if the single payer system will pay for it, that can't be covered by an insurance company anymore. So that's all medical coverage. It would be dental, vision, hearing, all of those things, mental health. Um, you could get an insurance pl pr um, plan for like cosmetic things or things that wouldn't be within that sort of fall within that realm. I have been trying to get better then, teeth, so I was thinking about yeah. that, which is cosmetic. Yeah. I'm like, man, should I, should I just get implants? <laughs> oh, so you have been looking at my Instagram. You know that's not. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. Didn't mean to call out your insecurities. <laughs> it's 95 um, degrees. Why is Sean always in jeans? He's always in jeans and boots. Oh. <laughs> Ankle weights and everything. <laughs> just working on it. We're working on it. Um, so, so insurance companies couldn't offer that duplicative coverage. We would have a single payer system. And what, what is recommended in the bills that I would support is moving toward global budgeting rather than per patient billing. So what we have right now is if you go to a doctor in, or you're admitted into a hospital, you know, the medical professionals are line iteming out every single thing that they do to give you care. You know, it's why you get these bills where you see like a $30 line item for Tylenol. Yeah, they got to scan and, it and, you know, like it's they're inventorying it as they're giving it to you. It's pretty crazy. Exactly. And and that's going over to an insurance company for them to then say whether they cover it, each individual line item, whether they give you a discount on it, what they're going to pay for it. And it also causes medical professionals to have to do something that's called prior authorization, which often for sometimes even for drugs that are otherwise over the counter, medical professionals will have to call and get in contact with the insurance company to get prior approval to deliver the care to the patient that they are treating. Because which is they don't want to like a waste of time. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> exactly. Is the point to like not screw the patient over where it's not going to meet their insurance and the patient stuck with a bill? Yeah, it, it's to basically say like, is this actually covered? Can we actually deliver this in for the care that we want to deliver this patient? Wow. And that is a waste of time and it's an administrative cost. And this is where when we start to say like, we will actually save money, this is where some of that savings comes from. It comes out of the administrative time that medical professionals have to put into dealing with insurance companies um, rather than treating patients. Yeah. And it comes out of rather than line iteming and nickel and diming for every little thing. When you move to a global budgeting process, you say, what does it take to run this hospital, to run this medical office? And how do we make sure that everyone who's working there actually gets a, a living wage and a good salary? Because that's something that doesn't always happen in our hospitals, particularly when you're talking about nurses or medical assistants or the people who, frankly, keep the building clean and sanitized. Yeah. So we actually can guarantee that people are getting good wages because we are not looking at a for-profit model for running a healthcare facility. And that is what will be delivered to that healthcare facility to run their operations on a, I believe the plan is monthly. So you would get a basically monthly amount of money to say, here's what you need to run your hospital or your doctor's office. And that's what would be allocated from the government to run it. It wouldn't be about, oh, how do I nickel and dime each one of my patients? And not saying that doctors are doing that with intention, but that's how they're forced to bill. It would be more about what actually keeps this hospital running. How do we keep it supplied? How do we ensure that it has what it needs to keep the community around it healthy? 
How do and you, it changes the, the 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 mode of funding. How do you select the person like the CEO of X hospital? And actually, I, I should have asked this first um, because I'm trying to. It's one of the first times I've actually spoken to someone who can kind of tell me about it without just saying talking points. I was impressed with like the specifics there. Um, so the each hospital, Hospital X in Lewis, Hospital X in Wilmington, applies directly to the federal government monthly to get that fund, or like they're applying to some state officer who's in contact with the federal government. Yeah, the plan is that it would be administered from the federal government, and it wouldn't necessarily be like they have to go back every month and say we need more money. It would be right. done sort of holistically from a year perspective. Yeah. But if there was something that happened, you know, let's say hopefully not, but some sort of natural disaster that escalated the amount of care that was needed in a given period, there's ability to basically say to, to request more to cover that. And then like, and it's not, and it wouldn't be like, Oh, we have to say exactly what we did for every single patient to justify it. It would simply say, this is what we need to deliver the care that we need to deliver. And then like the CEO of the hospital is that I'm assuming that would be a government employee. So it's not necessarily moving the, I'll say the delivery gotcha. and the, the, the positions to government positions. It's funding them through okay. the government. Because they no so longer have to unlike, contact the insurance person. They're now contacting the federal government for it. Right. So in, the UK has a fully nationalized model where the hospitals are government run. This is still private delivery, but publicly funded. And how does that, aside from the um, the more service, like you had said, the custodians or the um, nurse, um, what's below a licensed practical nurse? Registered nurse, LPN, R, and then it's a nursing assistant, NA, I believe. So they do get paid, like, good, I guess, decent money, but it's not like, I don't think it's life changing money. My no, I mean, I actually just had a, t sorry to interrupt there, but oh. I, I, we just had a town hall with medical professionals yesterday and a woman who's working as a medical assistant making 1350 an hour. Yeah. And those are the people or, a lot and of times. Those are, that's, you can't live on that in our state. Yeah. And they're grinders, man. Like they're doing the dirty work that other people don't want to do. But my, I guess my thought is if their wages go up, do the other wages follow? Like the doctors, are they making more money in this model? Or are doctors, if the people below doctors are making more money, doesn't that kind of devalue a doctor's worth? Or am I looking at that the wrong way? Hmm. I don't know that it is devaluing. I think it's making sure that everyone who is delivering care is valued. Hmm. And right now, that isn't always happening. Because we have some people who are really making wages that they can't live on in our healthcare system. And it causes people, again, people that were on this, this town hall last night saying, you know, I am a medical professional, but I still have to work another job. And yeah, I think want... what we should be looking at is you don't want someone no, who not... is run, is working a 12 hour shift to also then have to go yeah. and work another job. Yeah, no doubt. Like, man, I want you fresh. <laughs> like I want you making right. decisions in a good state of mind. I don't want you groggy right. at all. And a lot of money in, in privately run healthcare systems, you know, it goes to massive executive pay, massive executive bonuses, shareholder profits. If they are a, you know, a, a 
publicly traded company, particularly when it comes to insurance companies. So a lot of the money that goes into the system is ending up at the very, very top. And that is part of the problem that we need to solve. And that's another place where savings come from in, in changing our model. Gotcha. Because the government's not looking to make money off of it at one, mm-hmm. when they fund it. Therefore, um, right. okay. Yeah, that's something I've, and that's another thing. Like, you drive by these huge hospitals and you're like, so it's named DuPont. Like, does DuPont actually own that thing? <laughs> right? Like, like there's one BB down here. I'm like, so whoever this BB guy is and his family, I guess they still own this whole building and all these expansions. But I'm like, no, there, there has to be like a board, right? Where they take their profits and then they look for expansion and reinvestment, yeah. right? So then with exactly. that, so if they're not making profits, where does the, incentive for expansion and provide more services come from? Well, it shifts, but I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it's important because right now, a lot of expansion in hospitals is committed to things like orthopedic surgery or delivering programs or excuse me, delivering services to people who have private insurance so that they can make the most money and fund Uh... profits. So it's not necessarily driven by, oh, people who live around XYZ hospital, there's a preponderance of diabetes. Let's make sure that we have the best doctors to treat that or the facilities to treat that. It's instead driven by, we can make a whole lot of money if we do a lot of knee surgeries and a lot of hip surgeries. Hmm. So let's build a wing that allows us to do that, even if that's not really what's needed here. So instead, we would be looking at expansion from the basis of what's actually needed in a given community. We could be putting hospitals and, and, and medical facilities in places where they're needed, but the for-profit model doesn't justify them right now because we have closed hundreds of hospitals in our country, in rural areas in, in particular, because they couldn't turn a profit. They couldn't mm. make money. Same thing happens in low-income neighborhoods yeah, where you see hospitals closed because a lot of people that live there don't have insurance, so it's hard to make money off of them. And then talk about that just idea helping. is needs to change. Yeah. And I'm sorry. And just for listeners, we're not actually viewing each other. So it's, it's hard for me <laughs> um, to like know how to interject because you can't read any body language. But I think you brought up a great point. When you talk about these um, rural places or even low income communities, when you lose a hospital, you're losing a lot of good paying jobs that bring money into mm-hmm. those communities and those families are gone. Where if you have hospitals there, you're getting people who are, for the most part, excluding those you were speaking about, (laughs) making good money. And they might want to live close to where they work to have time with their kids. And now you're helping the schools and things like that. Like it's very very sensical what you're saying to me. Right. Yeah. And how much of that like community breakdown have we seen because of losing good employers in communities that need them? Well, it's like losing a factory. It does have the exact, it has the exact, you know, kind of, effect ripple effect that you're talking about if you lose jobs you lose a tax base you lose people living in your communities that affects your schools that affects the businesses that have otherwise um been started around that community like yeah even just a restaurant like even if you were just a corner restaurant that gave lunch to employees on their breaks Mm -hmm. right like that Mm -hmm. that's that's drives up if the hospital goes yeah yeah man no that's it's something it's interesting. How do you know all this at such a young age? What happened to you? Were you a savant? <laughs> I wish. No, I mean, I think that I just, 
have seen the same problems and had the same conversations with so many people and just started looking at like, what is actually going on here? And that predominantly came to me through, you know, we talked about workplace. I think the jobs that I had through my teens and twenties and, and into thirties, like definitely made me recognize that things shouldn't have to be this way. And also then I, I joined a, a board of a nonprofit. When I first moved to Delaware, I've been here 10 years. I um, looked for a way to kind of build community. And for me, that was through volunteerism. I moved here. My husband's originally from here. But, you know, when I moved here, all I knew was, was him and his family. So I, I was kind of looking for other people. <laughs> and through that work, I was introduced to an organization that delivers programming to girls statewide from predominantly under-resourced neighborhoods. And I joined that board and I became the board president there. And again, you just, you see how not addressing these root causes affects these girls, causes trauma in their lives unnecessarily. Because if they come from a household where their mom or dad has to work multiple jobs and aren't around and still are struggling to survive, that affects them. If they're renting a house that the landlord's not keeping up, and allowing to fall into disrepair and it makes them sick, that affects them. Mm. If they live in a community where all of the people are experiencing the same thing and the same lack of economic stability, then there's likely to be a lot of crime and that's going to affect them. And they're also likely to go to schools that are underfunded and that is going to affect them. So we look at all these things and they're all interconnected And, and health is another one where if you're coming out of communities like this, you're likely not, you don't have, I mean, most people struggle to find a primary care doctor. If you're coming from a low income community, you're absolutely going to struggle to find a primary yeah. care doctor. So especially if the seeing, incentive is a profit, is a profit driven yeah. one, why would a doctor set up shop where he's not going to, or he or she is not going to make money? Right. Right. And I understand that. And a lot yeah. of smaller practices have frankly just closed because the, the expense of running a business um, in medical practice is too high. And But so that experience just calcified in me that we have to be looking at actually solving the root issues because otherwise we are just going to continually spend money treating symptoms. And the way that we treat symptoms right now is harmful. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's putting people in jail for crimes of poverty, keeping people locked up because they can't afford to pay bail, which then disrupts their community, disrupts their family, causes them to lose a job if they get convicted, causes them to really struggle to ever get a job again. And we deal with it by underfunding schools. Well, we're running low on budget dollars. We can't fund schools. But state of Delaware has a kind of small business investment fund. And earlier this year, that from that fund, there was four and a half million dollars given to Amazon to put a warehouse in our state. Hmm. Amazon does not need four and a half million dollars from us. Wait, wait. If they want to... (laughs) Is this... Because you may be breaking news on this podcast. So you're telling me (laughs) in an official capacity that Amazon is not a small business? No, it is not. (laughs) And you know what? They've already located quite a few warehouses here. And if they wanted to put up another one, they certainly could. That's And we don't need to to pay them to do that. That that just makes no sense. (laughs) No. And then months later... The Christina School District has to go and put out a referendum referendum to raise $10 million to keep teachers yeah. and aides yeah. and sports and music and all of the things that make their school a school. Yeah. 
that so, bring a community together, especially the sports and the arts, right. the after school stuff is huge for communities. Yes. And it's huge for families who, again, are probably working multiple jobs yeah. and can't always afford childcare services. And, and so and I'm we sorry, are making to, our schools go beg, but we're giving money away to Amazon. Yeah. And I just wanted to emphasize your point, again, being a teacher, something I've noticed, and I didn't realize it till COVID and the spring sports and the fall sports are in question and whatnot. The private leagues can still be out there, but if you're going to pay whatever, I have a 10 year old daughter, she plays field hockey. It's expensive. Like travel mm-hmm. field hockey is expensive. It's zero cost to her if she does it through the school and she gets two hours right. every day. Sticks can be provided for her. She can learn from it. And what I do, I, I look at kids who like play basketball and a lot of the kids, so I coach basketball as well. They would not be able to afford privatized basketball, but they can for two hours come after school, make sure they work out, have an active lifestyle free of cost. And that does actually keep them out of trouble. Yes. I mean, it, yes, that's but, a huge But, but point. so many things are becoming privatized, to your point, even children's sports. Yeah. Where And, and what is going to continually happen is this divide between haves and have-nots gets even bigger because people who can afford it will put their kids in the private schools, in the private sports, in private tutoring, whatever it is. But people who can't afford it will fall further and further behind. And then the people who are paying for their own private services will look at the public services and say, well, why do we even need that? Yeah. Because their kids aren't using it. Their family isn't using it. Waste of taxpayer money. (laughs) And and they will not want their money to go toward it. And they will not want that. And then you start to have these divides that come up and and further destabilize our public goods. Four million for Amazon. Four million. How yeah. much money could a school? What could a school district do for their infrastructure with four mm-hmm. million dollars? Even yeah. if they just got half a million each, man, you spread that stuff out through the state or whatever. Yeah, Golly it's day. really frustrating to see. And then and there was a there it it was leaked before it was finalized, and there were people who showed up to a meeting to demand to demand that it not go through, but they did it. And it's just one of those things that feels like a slap in the face. This is our public money. And we are investing it in a multi-billion dollar mega corporation so that they can put a warehouse on in the place where the Boxwood Road plant used to be. You know, we've heard this this one location has had so much money put into it. It was supposed to be the Fisker Karma plant. It was supposed to be now it's gonna be an Amazon warehouse. And they're talking about, you know, hundreds of jobs, but yeah, I've make, talked to quite a few people that work in those Amazon warehouses and those are not good jobs. You don't want to work there. You don't want to work all they, night. You, you don't want to no. not, like not really get the good benefits. I've heard a lot of them. Those jobs are sometimes seasonal. You know, mm-hmm. you're a COVID right. hire or you're a Christmas hire and you just try to grind yeah. on like 12 hour shifts, seven days a week. Cause you can get as many hours as you want. And then all right. of a sudden tra- or, or, um, commerce slows down and it's like, Oh, don't need you, man. Here's a reduction in your hours. Yeah. And a lot of those people are hired through third-party companies. So you're not even really an Amazon employee anymore, right. which, which they used to hire direct. Now they hire a lot through third-party. Liability. And like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's a lot easier to just fire someone yeah. and just get a replacement. And I've heard stories. I mean, people who volunteer for our campaign are, have, have worked those jobs. And they say, you know, I got sick and I needed some time. Because my job was very strenuous. I was unloading yeah. the trucks and, and moving massive boxes. And I got sick. I needed time. But they told me if I didn't have a doctor's note 
then I couldn't really take the time off, but I don't have insurance, so I can't go to the doctor. And basically they just lost their job because they got sick doing the work. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've spoken to it, um, people, I believe he was, I, I don't want to jack up his title, so I won't say it, but basically he was in charge of like the healthy aspect. Like, Hey guys, when you bend to lift a box up, this is the proper form. Hey, mm-hmm. in your station, we want to do this. Like this will help you stand this way or make sure you're bending the correct way. Make sure you're lifting the correct way. That was kind of his job. And he would go around and try to get time to teach people. And Amazon was like, I can give you two minutes for each person, because if not, our algorithm gets thrown off between shipping everything. And he was and like, he couldn't work there anymore. He's like, I'm not going to be okay with doing my job poorly all because of Mm -hmm. your quota. Like that's all it was, man. You're, you're, you were ants. (laughs) Like it it made them seem (laughs) like, like those workers were ants and it wasn't about their own health. No, completely expendable. Yeah. Not seen as human. Your production. Completely devoid of humanity. It's so, it's solely, can we plug you into this formula and get as much out of you as we possibly can? And and if we can't, we'll find someone else to do it. And that's, that goes back to the desperation that we keep people in. Yeah. Right. Because they see that as a good job. They see it as opportunity. Right. Well, if you're making if you're making minimum wage in Delaware, which is what nine twenty five, and then you can get a fifteen dollar an hour Amazon job, like yeah. people are going to want to do that. So there's always going to be someone who is in a worse situation because of the way that we treat workers in our country. There's always going to be someone who's in a worse situation than the person who has that job. Yeah. So the person that has that job is always threatened with like, we'll just replace you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, you've worked in restaurant. Like, we've heard these things, right? Like, I know I've heard those things. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. We'll just hire someone else because someone else is going to need a job. And that's what happens when we don't create a society that actually takes care of people and guarantees people's basic human rights. Yeah, man. Jess, an hour is not going to be enough, but I'll get. I'll, <laughs> I'll take what I can get of your time because you brought something up that I actually, as again an independent voter, I don't know where I stand on minimum wage being a livable wage. And I, again, due to my astute, studious research on your Twitter, $15 an hour, <laughs> um, you're saying $15 an hour should be the a livable wage. Am I correct? And I don't want to put words in your mouth. I guess I'll just let yeah, you talk I mean, about 15 it. 15 is... 15 is the fight that we've been in. And frankly, we've been in the fight for 15 for too long that it's now, in a lot of places, not livable. What we... What we should be aspiring to do is ensuring that everyone who is working can afford to live. I mean, everyone, frankly, should be able to afford to live, but especially if you're working, like the the fact that people have to piece multiple jobs together just to get by is inexcusable. So, but uh, one thing we should be just to say is like, we should look at the fact that in our state, if you want to rent a one bedroom median average apartment, to do that comfortably and not be what's called rent burden, not be paying more than 30% of your income on rent, you need to be making over $18 an hour. So our minimum wage is half that. We're basically saying if you work a minimum wage job, there's no housing in our in our state that you're even going to be able to afford. Don't have a kid. <laughs> if you're working minimum wage job, don't have a right. kid and need that second bedroom. Right. <laughs> no, it completely, it, I mean, the things that, the ways that people are held back because of our failure to build worker power and take care of workers. And what that ends up doing is it creates more people who are now living with housing instability. And it's, it is better for our society. And frankly, if you need an economic argument, cheaper to house people than it is to have large homeless populations. 
Like we can, we, because you eradicate other healthcare problems, you eradicate other mental health problems. If someone is just housed. And what we want is we have such a punitive approach to so many things. You hear people say like, well, if you want housing, you have to work for it. And it's like, okay, fine. There are literally people working 60 hours who still can't afford housing. What's your answer for them? Yeah. And then they're like, well, they need to get a better job. And it's like, okay. Um, how do they pay for the educa- skills to get that? Yeah, how do they pay for that? And how do are, they pay for their education? So they're going to take like, time off from the job that they can't make enough money on. They're going to give mm-hmm. away that money to then go to school <laughs> in order yeah. to find the better job. What's going to happen in the meantime? And if you are a recipient of, say, Medicaid, so you actually have health insurance because you're you you're you don't make nearly enough to be above the standard, so you are actually able to get Medicaid, which the standard is very low. Most people make too much to be on Medicaid and then fall in this gap where they can't afford a say, a marketplace plan. But let's say that you get Medicaid and you want to help yourself. You're like, okay, I'm going to try to save up my money. If you get more than $2,000 in assets, you can no longer get Medicaid. $2,000 So we put people in this bind where if you save money because you're trying to do better for yourself, you actually lose the benefit that you need to survive. Like these are the, these are the places that we're putting people and I, and the struggle that we are keeping them in. And this is why we talk about poverty being systemic and why you can't just earn your way out of poverty because things like that start to happen to you. So here's where my mind is going, listening to you. And I do really enjoy listening and conversating with people who bring up points that help me to realize things, right? So I've always heard the argument, minimum wage, $15 an hour. Well, if I'm a small business owner, I can't afford that, right? You're cutting into my profits Mm -hmm. or my rent's too much, or I'm going to have to increase my prices. So I'm going to lose my small business. But, and I don't want to be too long-winded, but I just want to explain the thinking. So if we keep minimum wage at nine and the small business received the subsidy or the person who's working received the difference to get them to 15 in my head. Now I'm like, dude, if people made more money, they would need less help from the government because you don't Mm -hmm. have to be on free and reduced lunch. You don't have to be on Medicare, Medicaid. You don't have to apply for a housing grant to get like, um, I, I don't, I don't know what it, it's not, um, there's like section eight vouchers. Yeah, yeah. Vouchers. Well exactly. Like, Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. trying to get a voucher because you have three kids and you're like, well, I qualify for $800 and I'll try to make the rest up. Like you, you almost can eliminate a lot of that. So in my head, I'm thinking, why can't the government just subsidize and kind of make the difference up and then you save yes. it on the back end? So would yeah, that I mean, this be the... is what we talk about. Okay. So yeah. is that actually like a thought, like the, there's a standard minimum wage and then the gap is paid for by the government or with the businesses have to make all that, would the businesses have to pay all of that 15 an hour? So there's kind of two sides to this. I want to first just kind of make one statement that in places where the minimum wage has been raised, it has actually led to more economic activity because when you put money in the hands of working people, they spend it. They spend it. So now I got when discretionary you have income. as a small business, <laughs> right? Like if you have a small business, it's almost like you have to prime the machine, right? So if you if you are if you have more people in your community who make more money that they actually have some left over at the end of the month, now there's people who can come to your restaurant or come to your shop yeah. or whatever it might be. So there's this kind of beneficial cycle that's created yeah. by raising wages. But I don't I I think that we absolutely could say that 
there's a way for small businesses to be subsidized to fill that wage gap if necessary. We have subsidized corporations and yeah. allowed them to live off of corporate welfare yeah. for how many decades? Especially if they're big and they go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they can basically get these basically zero interest loans from the Fed at any given moment. Yeah. And we allow that to happen. And we don't have the same infrastructure in place for individuals and workers and small businesses. And those are the things that I think we have to focus on actually building out because our, the, the focus of our government has to be more on the individual people and, and workers, not just these corporate interests, because that is actually what is going to lift up all of our society and ensure that people can survive. And so, yeah, I, I don't see any harm in saying that, you know, government subsidies no longer go to corporations. They go to workers and small businesses until maybe that small business gets to a place where it can pay that wage. Dude. And I feel like it would be so easy with technology. It would be like an app with direct deposit. Like if I can get my COVID check because I filed my taxes, I can, whatever my, my like time card can be sent somewhere to the government. And then like the money get kicked to you through like Venmo or cash app, you know, like it seems like it would be so easy to do. That's such a good point because that doesn't really exist effectively right now. And it's one reason that I really liked the Rashida Tila bill that came out kind of in March. Everyone was calling it like the mint the coin bill where she was basically going to create a structure where everyone had a debit card, a government connected debit card so that we could put money in your pocket immediately because that infrastructure exists for corporations. Yeah. And it, it doesn't exist for the people that the government should actually care for. And we absolutely should be building that infrastructure out because we know it's needed. We know that this one pandemic is not going to be the only countrywide crisis that we face, particularly as climate change comes and, and we are not prepared. These pandemics are only going to be worse. These extreme weather events are only going to be worse. So we need to have that infrastructure in place so that the government can actually directly provide money to people. Because while it was sort of through the IRS, there were a whole lot of people who got money went into debt accounts, money went into someone else's account. I heard someone who's like, well, I filed my taxes with my parent, you know, because we were taking care of her and it went into her account, not my account. And so even though we were trying to give people money directly, we still didn't really have the structure and the, and the, the, the pipes weren't set up to do it. Jeff, you're killing Jess. I'm so upset that you only gave me an hour. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not going to vote for you. Um, but I am going to hold a grudge for the rest of my life because uh, well, dude, there's you know so Let's... much just there. No, but I'm like, dude, you're, you're just very, you're, you're very knowledgeable. You have a lot of points. Very easy to speak to. Cl- clearly, you're used to articulating things. I doubt very much you're like Googling and seeing what's trending to placate <laughs> to what I want to hear, right? No, I haven't Googled, I haven't Googled a single thing. On yeah, this, dude, on this like pod. to me, that's that's wicked impressive. <laughs> um, and I, I really wish because I, 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 I enjoy the thought of minimum wage versus a livable wage and the philosophy between the wording on that. But I'll be yeah. respectful of your time. Well, and one thing I want to hit on, maybe just let me get one more point. Oh, no, please. Yeah. This is why I, I do like to talk about a federal jobs guarantee. Because you could use a federal jobs guarantee to set essentially the prevailing wage. And if we had a federal jobs guarantee where every single person made $15 an hour, there's no reason for anyone to pay under $15 an hour because workers can turn to the federal government and say, I need work. Uh, and there's more than enough for us to do. Heck yeah. And we can actually deliver that wage to people and ensure that people who are not currently employed are, they don't have these long gaps 
in, in employment if they want to be working because that harms your ability to get the next job. And people will pay you less because you were out of work yeah. for six months or you yeah. have to explain that gap. No doubt. So we, there, that's another tool kind of in the toolbox there to actually ensure that people get a good wage and aren't left on unemployment making, you know, a, a, sh- a shred of what they used to um, when we could be putting them to work. And there's there's more than enough work we, we could be doing in our country right now. What is the current federal job like minimum wage? Do you know? I, I didn't actually know that. That was twenty five. It's knew- very low. The federal minimum wage. Oh is, no, yes. I believe seven twenty five. Oh, so then that's if you get. God, you got now. That's coming together. Okay, so then that would be the minimum that the federal government would have to pay someone who does a federal job. I doubt that they're yeah. actually. I wonder if they're doing that. Huh? Yeah, because I know Delaware's again, like you were saying, is in the nines. So it's um, it mm-hmm. is, that would be a little weird. All right, Jess, let me ask you to do this. This is how I end the podcast. And I'd like you to have a little fun. I'd like you to tell a little story about yourself because it's the getting to know you pod. Can I please get your best first for last? We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. That's like first thing I've ever done. Exactly. Yeah, dude, you nailed it. Yeah. I, I really like the simplicity of it. And everyone who comes on is always kind of caught off guard by it. So it tells me two oh, things. Man. One, no one ever makes it to the end of a podcast. <laughs> and two, Fair. it's like, I don't know. I just love the authenticity of putting people on the spot and be like, yeah, man, tell me one of the cool first experiences you've ever had that would be a great last thing for people getting to know you to hear about. Um. I think I will go with the first time that I ever went to a national park, which wow. was the Grand Canyon. And life changing. Yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> husband and I were in Arizona and we, we actually were, he had been staying in Sedona and we're like, we're going to drive up to the park. We left super early in the morning and got to like watch the sunrise as we were driving through the national forest that's on the way to the park. And then we got there and just stood at the the rim for a bit, kind of just overlooking it. We were at the south rim, just overlooking it in that morning light. And it was, I'm trying to remember what month it was. It was basically like snowy and icy at the top Mm. and cold. But then as we started to hike into the canyon, it got like warmer and warmer and just the colors of the canyon are so striking, so beautiful. So I'm going to go with that. The first time I saw and hiked the Grand Canyon. Did How close did you get to the edge? Oh, I mean, when you were up I there. went into it. Oh, no, <laughs> so no, I'm talking about when we, you're up We top. stood at the edge and then we like hiked down into the canyon. So when you're hiking down, particularly the trail we were on, um, you, I mean, at some point the, the trail is pretty narrow. So you're you're right along the edge there. And there's not guardrails or anything you could you could people do fall in i'm not gonna belittle that it, it is a little dangerous and at times when you're on the trail people people will ride donkeys and <laughs> you have to like get the donkey has the right of way so you have to go you have to make sure you're going to the inside of the trail like not yeah. to the outside where you'll be on the edge you take the take the wall side because when you're walking down at the very top in particular you're basically just doing switchbacks like along the edge of the canyon for two miles and it's 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 a lot easier to go down what are they there's signs everywhere that say um 
down is optional, up is mandatory. And it's a good, it's a good thing to remind yourself. Like when you're walking downhill into the canyon, you're like, this is great. And then you're like, no, we got to climb out later. Yeah. And I've since been back and, and uh, did, a, did the same hike, but, but longer. And I, I took my little sister and I thought she was going to maybe um, abandon me after I made her climb her way back out that day. Yeah. How old was she at the time of the climb? Um, 20, 21, maybe. Yeah, yeah. She's not ready for that work. They're soft at that age. They're soft. <laughs> she did it though. She did it. I was, I was impressed. We, it was really, we did it. We did like an eight day uh, national park trip where we rented a van and lived in the van and, and oh, went no to Zion national national park and Bryce Canyon and Oh God, Grand Canyon and Antelope Canyon. So we did, I think we hiked like, I don't know, close to a hundred miles that trip. So she, that was the last one. She was like, I'm done. Yep. I'm done with you. <laughs> yeah, man, living in the van, um, I not to whatever gets you personal. My mind immediately goes to the, sh- the shower situation after hiking all day and then yeah. coming into a van with each other. Like, oh, the windows yeah. had to be down all the time. No way you're going AC. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And, but I will say the campgrounds out that way are quite nice. And the oh. showers are quite nice because they, they probably know that people are going to need them. Gotcha. Okay. So then I was thinking about that the wrong way. You're pulling into a campground and then like, I've oh, never yeah. been out we, there. That's, that's the that was, we, we had, we needed that. Gotcha. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. That sounds glorious. Yeah. I had no idea. I've never been, I don't think I've really been West of the Mississippi. Flew into Texas once, but never really been west of the Mississippi to explore. And um, yeah, I hadn't for many, many years. And then when I went, I was like, oh, this, the, the parks in particular, like I really would like to get to every single one of them. Right now, my husband are trying to bucket list all of the um, Major League Baseball stadiums, which we are not going to make progress this year, unfortunately. <laughs> but we're we're more than halfway through those. So then maybe after we do that, we'll, we'll get all the parks. No way. Oh. Well, I kind of, yeah. in a sneaky way, snuck an extra five minutes out I of you, Jess. I, I apologize. <laughs> you handled it like a pro. I really wish um, we had more time, but I do really appreciate you coming on, Jess. You getting um, to or letting us get to know you. And primary is the fifteenth of September, correct? Correct, correct. Democratic and, primary in the state of Delaware, and and if you know, people... we're down to. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going <laughs> to give you the plug, but you can say I was just going to say at the end, like. Are you a good follow? Like you prefer the Twitter follow, the Instagram follow, or are you a Facebook person, everything, or how can people get yeah, to know more I mean, about you? Yeah, I mean, we are on all of those. You can find us at just Just for Delaware um, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and our website's justfordelaware.com. But the definitely follow, but the best thing, if you can right now, is to help us phone bank. We are under 50 days until the election. And because now we have vote by mail in our state, people are already going to start getting their ballots come next week. Oh. So we are in absolute crunch time to make sure that everyone knows that they actually have a choice in this election and that and what we stand for and what we're running on. It. And that is creating a government that actually puts people over profit so we can have a country that works for every single one of us. And we deserve it. And it's, it's time that we have people who are going to fight for it. Man, I had no idea. So the ballots are coming like that soon, yeah. huh? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that that can be kind of scary because honestly, until I went to Ballopedia and started just emailing people running for office, I had not heard of you. And then Googling you, I see one article in like Delaware Online. I'm like, 
man, I really don't know my options. And then last night, one of your opponents, I guess maybe the only opponent, comes up on a 15-second yeah. Hulu commercial for Project Runway. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there's that $7 million at work. <laughs> like, yeah, there you go. But like, yeah, I, had no, I had no idea that he, he was even being challenged. Yeah. Well, we're trying. We're doing right. the work. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're phone, but we're calling all of the uh, – Registered Democrats in the state, because unfortunately we've got closed primaries. Yeah, so that's, that's another thing. Vote. That's another but, thing. But yeah, we're making sure, we're trying to make sure that people know they have choice. Awesome. Jess, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your time. I won't try to sneakily keep you on any longer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it again. We'll fit, We'll get another hour in there somewhere. Yeah, man, anytime. I would love to. I'm I'd love to have it. you on. All right. All right, Jess, enjoy right, the rest well, of your day. Thanks so much. You're thank welcome. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to Jessica Scarane for coming on the Getting to Know You pod, giving her time and sharing her thoughts. If you'd like to know more about Jessica Scarane, you can go to her website, Jess for Delaware. That is J-E-S-S-F-O-R Delaware.com. Remember, the primary in Delaware is September 15th. Thanks and a big shout out to AndrePsyche.com for sponsoring the Getting to Know You pod. Take a moment right now. Go to AndrePsyche.com for some trippy merch that's going to be worth checking out. And if you haven't already, I mean, we did mention it at the beginning. If you would not mind friending and following the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, the word of the pod, the word of the pod is duplicative duplicative is the word of the pod so if you post that word on any of our social media sites platforms or tag the getting to know you pod when you use it on any of yours you'll get a shout out on our very next podcast don't forget subscribe rate and review the getting to know you pod on apple spotify or your preferred podcast platform we are just alliterative with all these P's, aren't we? And finally, I say we like you are a part of this. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor or an advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. All you have to do is message us. Don't forget, get out and vote.